Good morning. How's everybody doing today? Good? All right. Uh, some of you lied. I know you aren't doing good, but that's all right. We're just glad you're here. We're finishing up a series that we've been doing since the middle of August. And since the middle of August, we've been walking together through the first seven chapters of the book of Acts. And uh, we've called this series Diary of a Courageous Church. And we've looked at how before uh, Acts, there was really no organized church. Jesus had, had told Peter uh, back when, when, before Jesus was crucified, and, and, uh, and he said, I'm going to build my church, and I'm going to build it on the rock, which Jesus was talking about himself. And, and, then, and then after Jesus was crucified and he, and he was resurrected, he had a conversation with Peter, and he said, Peter, feed my sheep. So it was kind of like Jesus was giving some leadership over to Peter and saying, when I'm gone, you're, you're going to kind of head this thing up. And, and then, then we saw in the first uh, chapter of Acts where Jesus gave them a command and he said, you will be my witnesses. You're going to be my witnesses right here where you live. You're going to be my witnesses in the, in the region where you live. You're going to be my witnesses in the country where you live. And eventually you're going to be my witnesses to the very ends of the earth. And so, so it was at that point that the church really began to be born and, and, and began to be organized. And we've seen for the last few chapters, we've seen how God did amazing things through the church. And now we come to, to uh, the end of chapter 6 and, and all of chapter 7 today. And one of the other things we've seen as we've, as we've journeyed through these chapters is we've seen how there has been steady opposition building against the church. When, when we first heard about the church back in Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2, in fact, in Acts chapter 2, there's a verse where it says that the, the people of the church enjoyed the favor of all the people. So there really was no opposition that they were facing. But then remember what we've seen over the last few weeks. We, we had a story where Peter and John heal a guy. At, they go to church and there's a guy there who can't walk and they heal him and they throw Peter and John in jail after the healing. And then we saw a, a story a couple weeks ago where, where uh, all 12 disciples were thrown in prison because they were out teaching the gospel. And so throughout what we've been seeing through these few chapters is there's a steady, slow opposition that's building against the church. And what we're going to get to today at the end of chapter 6 and all of chapter 7 is we're going to get to the part where, where we'll see the opposition kind of take its full-fledged attack against the church. And so, so what we're going to do is um, uh, we're going to start reading in Acts chapter 6 verse 8. And I'm going to read several verses and, uh, and then I'm going to skip over a large section and I'll explain that when I get to it. So if you've got your Bible, turn to Acts chapter 6 verse 8. If you don't have your Bible, it's going to be on the screen, Acts 6, 8. And, um, and so uh, follow along as I read. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Before I go on, remember last week, if you were here, um, that, that there was this issue, an internal issue within the church, and, and the apostles said, hey, we're going to choose some guys to, to handle this issue. Stephen was one of the guys that was chosen. So he was, he was a leader in the church, and, and it says here in verse 8 that, that he was full of God's grace and power, and, and not only was he handling that issue, internal issue in the church, but he was going out and performing miracles and preaching the gospel and doing a lot of great stuff. Verse 9, opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. These men began to argue with Stephen. I love that in there, the Luke who wrote Acts says that they were the synagogue of the freedmen, and then he puts 
as it was called. Because what Luke understood was is the only way you can be truly free is through Jesus Christ. But these guys called themselves free, but they weren't really free. They were still slaves to sin. And uh, so that's kind of Luke's way of just throwing a little thing in there like, hey, these guys weren't what they really said they were. Verse 10. But they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. Do you remember last week when they selected these guys to take care of this problem? What were the two qualifications? They said they needed men who were full of the spirit and wisdom. And so, once again, we see that that was being lived out in Stephen's life. He was full of the Spirit. He was full of the wisdom of God. And because of that, that every time they would try to argue with him or he'd be up there teaching or whatever it was he was doing, when they'd try to oppose him, they couldn't hang with him because the Spirit of God was so strong and, and he was so wise that they were having a hard time dealing with him. So this is what they did in verse 11. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen And they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Then go to chapter 7, verse 1. Then the high priest asked him, Are these charges true? What I think is funny about this is the Sanhedrin, they've they've been calling the, they've been arresting the apostles and bringing them in now for the last few weeks. We've seen this happen. And they still haven't figured out that they shouldn't give these guys an opportunity to speak because they're not going to say what they want them to say. And so the Sanhedrin tells Stephen, hey, we're going to give you the floor. We're going to just let you speak for a while. And, uh, and of course, Stephen is ready to do that. Verse 2, it says this, To this he replied, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Now, I'm not going to read the next uh, 46 verses from 7.2 to 7.47, but I'll tell you what Stephen does. For the next 46 verses, Stephen goes through a history of the country of Israel. And he began with Abraham. He just said something about Abraham, which is kind of funny because they're saying, hey, we're, you, know, you can defend yourself now. You're being, you've been arrested. We, we have the power to, to do bad stuff to you. How are you going to defend yourself? And he starts talking about Abraham, which would be like you getting pulled in for something, and they say, what's your defense? And you go back and start talking about George Washington because Abraham was the founder of Israel. And so, um, so it's kind of strange that he did that. But what he was doing was he was building up a case, and he starts with Abraham, and then he moves and he talks about Jacob, and, and, then, and then he moves from there and he, he talks about Joseph, and then he talks about how the Israelites were slaves in Egypt, and then he talks about Moses. And then, and then after he talks about Moses, he mentions just a little bit about David and then he gets to Solomon because Solomon was the king of Israel that built the temple so the temple that they're in right now they've called him in they've brought him into the temple they're saying hey people say that you're saying that this temple is going to be destroyed and all that kind of stuff is that what you're really saying and he gets all the way to Solomon who built the temple that they're in and he says this verse 48 however the most high does not live in houses made by men as the prophet says Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where where will my resting place be? 
Has not my hand made all these things? So what was happening was the Jews at this time, they were, they were basically worshiping the temple. They had gotten to the point that they thought that that's what it was all about, that God himself dwelt there and, and that kind of stuff. And Stephen's saying, listen, y'all are way off base. Yes, Solomon built the temple. Yeah, he was a wise king. But God doesn't live just in this temple. There's no temple that can contain God. And that's the same thing I would say to you today. I mean, good gracious, this is a public high school. It's not like on Sunday morning God dwells here and then he leaves again on Monday morning when, when kids show up here for school. God is everywhere. God, is, God can be all places at once. So God can't be contained in one building. And that's what Stephen was saying. And then, verse 51, Stephen just says, he's, I'm going to lay the holy smack down on you people. And here it is right here. And this is what he says in verse 51. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, and now you have betrayed and murdered him. You have received you who have received the law that was put into effect through the angels, but have not obeyed it. When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. I don't really know what that means. But uh, next time someone's mad at you, just go like, see, see what kind of reaction you get. But evidently that was a bad deal because you're going to see what happens next. Verse 55, but Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. Let's pray together before we go on. Father God, I pray that uh, we would understand the truth of your word today. And, Lord, that you would open all of our hearts. God, that you would change lives today. That's something that only you can do. And uh, we look forward to, uh, to how you're going to move in this place. And, God, we, just, we ask that, that we would get out of your way and let you do exactly what it is that you need to do. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So you see at the end of this story, the opposition against the church has, has reached its maximum point. Up to this, up to this time, people had been arrested for teaching the gospel. <clears throat> People had been beaten for teaching the gospel, but no one had been executed. And here you have Stephen, who was recently appointed by his church to be a leader in the church, and he becomes the very first person that, that's recorded that was executed for, for the gospel of Jesus Christ, for, the, for, for teaching what Jesus taught and for, for telling people that that was the only way of salvation. He was executed. So the church has, has, has experienced its, its greatest opposition. But what I think is interesting and what I want us to focus on today is the message that Stephen spoke. Because, because what we see is, is that, that it's, it's very similar to what we've seen before. In, um, in uh, just a few weeks ago, uh, Steve Jobs passed away. And, um, and Steve Jobs was the founder of Apple, and uh, the, you know he, there's been a lot in the media about about Apple and, and about him dying and all that kind of stuff. And um, one of the th I heard a, I was watching something about him, and I heard a quote, and I can't even remember who said it, 
but uh, but I thought it was interesting. And uh, they said they said that what Steve Jobs understood was is that simplicity is the new genius. In other words, is that it's you have to take things and make it simple. And, and Steve Jobs understood that. And he and, and one of the things that that he did through Apple is they would take very complex things like computers and MP3 players and things like that, and they'd make it where regular stupid people like me could operate it. And uh, I, I'll never forget several years ago. And, and here's a funny thing, and this is, I'm not going to get off track on this, but uh, but in the world, and those of you that aren't technical technological geeks, I'm not either. But maybe you don't know this, but I've got some techie geek friends, and, and I know from them. In the tech geek world, there are there's like two camps. There's like Apple people, and there's non-Apple people, and they don't like each other. It's almost as bad as like Carolina Clemson fans. I mean, they talk bad about the other product and all this kind of, It's just crazy to me that you would be that passionate over computers, but... But anyway, they are, and uh, and I'll never forget several years ago when uh, when Apple came out with one of their new computers that they were advertising on TV. And and listen, I'm a computer idiot, and so they came out and they were saying, "Hey, this new computer, you can you can uh, edit movies on it, and you can do music and all this kind of stuff." And I remember I made the mistake of mentioning to someone who evidently was a non-Apple person. I said, hey, I was thinking about getting one of those new Apple computers. That looks cool because you can edit movies and do music. And he said, you can do all that on a PC. You've been able to do that on a PC for years. You know, and he was like all been out of shape. And I was like, whoa, 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 dude, I'm just talking about computers here, you know. And, uh, but, the, but the difference, what, what that guy didn't understand is he was, a, he was a computer guy. Yeah, he could do that on a PC. I couldn't do that on a PC. But what, what Steve Jobs understood was is that he would take something that's complicated and he would make it simple, where everybody could use it. I bought an iPod several years ago, not knowing anything about anything, and I plugged it in, and within 10 minutes, I knew how to use it, because it's simple. There was just a few buttons, and it was just a few little things to do, and it was very simple. And so simplicity was a new genius. That's what he understood. And one of the things that we see about the message that the apostles were teaching throughout the book of Acts, through these first seven chapters, is the message was simple. And so the first thing that we see is that the message is simple and it's worth dying for. The message is simple and it's worth dying for. Now, what I love is that, is that Stephen preaches basically the same sermon that Peter preached back at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. I mean, they had one thing to say and they just kept saying it. And, and, and I love that. And, and, and the thing that they kept saying was, Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is the only way of salvation, and that was it. That was their message. They kept teaching that. And they always stayed on track. They never got off track with anything else. And we've talked about this some in our life group on Wednesday nights about how it's just amazing that they stayed on that one message. They didn't get off on you know, trying to show people how smart they were. I mean, you think about it. These are the, these are the guys that hung around with Jesus. If it was us today, if I'd, if I'd spent three years with Jesus and y'all came here, man, I'd, every Sunday I'd be talking about, yeah, man, one time me and Jesus, we were doing this. You know, I'd, I'd be bragging about that. That's what most of us would be doing. But for them, it was all about this is the message. Jesus died and you need him, and that was what they did. It was a simple message, and they didn't get off track with anything else. And, and um, one of the things that's interesting about doing what I do uh, uh, for a living up here is that from time to time, I'll have people that will, will come to me and they'll want to tell me what I should be teaching on. Um, Donnie and I always get a kick out of that. And, um, and I read a blog this week where somebody 
called those people issue Christians, where they've got one issue that's their, that, that, that's their issue. And they think that, that the pastor should be teaching on that. They think everybody should be concerned about that. And that's their issue. And it can be a lot of different things. Uh, we had a guy who, who came here to church for a while, and, and uh, he, he, he had a theological issue. That was his deal. And it, was, and it was a legitimate theological issue that, that Scripture does address. But every week it didn't matter what I was teaching on. Man, I could be teaching on marriage. I could be teaching on the book of Acts. I could be teaching on child raising. I could be teaching on baptism. It didn't matter what we were teaching on that week. He would always come down front, meet me at the bottom after the service, and guess what issue he wanted to talk about? That same theological issue. Man, oh, I, I like what you said today, but you didn't talk about this. You didn't talk, when are you going to talk about this? And that was his issue. That was the thing. And the thing was, it's a legitimate issue. It, it was a good issue. We had another guy that, that visited here for a while, and, and uh, he, he was a political issue guy. And, and he was all, man, he was coming to me all the time, wanting me to, like, pass out voter guides and stuff. And tell, he wanted me to stand up here and tell people how they should vote and, and you know, and all this kind of stuff. And, and just, he, that was his thing, man. Was, he even called me, when I knew it was, when it was just getting out of control, he called me at home one day and said, hey, you and me, man, we need to go down and see Jim DeMint's going to be here. And I want you to talk to him for me and all this stuff. And I was like, dude, you're on your own on that, that deal right there. And so for him... He was a political issue guy. Now, here's the thing about issues. All those issues are important. The, the, the theological issues need to be addressed. And, and, and political issues, we need to be uh, uh, smart enough and wise enough and informed enough to make the right decisions when we go to vote. There are social issues that, that we do need to, to make stands on from time to time and that kind of stuff. And, and, and so all those things are good. But, but the thing that we can't lose track of is that, that, that the consistent message of this church has to be Jesus. The, the, the overall message of this church has to be Jesus. It's got to always be about Jesus. And if we do address a theological issue, or if we do talk about a political issue, or if we do talk about a social issue, it's all got to be through the lens of Jesus. What Jesus wants us to do about that and how Jesus can change people's lives. And, and so what we talk about here should be that Jesus was born, Jesus lived a perfect life, Jesus was crucified on a cross for our sins, Jesus came back to life after the third day, came out of the grave, Jesus ascended into heaven, and one day Jesus is coming back. That's the consistent, simple message that this church needs to be teaching. It's got to be about Jesus. And that's what we saw in the apostles. They just continued to teach that same thing over and over and over again. I had a, a friend of mine who was on staff at a church in Charlotte um, several years ago, and and, uh, and and at that time, it was, uh, it, it was a probably about, I guess this was about 15 years ago or so, maybe closer to 20 years ago. It's been a long time. But at that time, um, the, the issue of AIDS was just kind of brand new. And, and people, there was a lot of misinformation out there about it, and people didn't understand it and that kind of stuff. And, and, uh, and the, the church that he was at, the, uh, the, the North Carolina Baptist Convention or whatever, they decided that they were going to have AIDS Awareness Day. And they wanted all their churches to have a big AIDS awareness day and stuff. And, and the pastor of, of the church that my friend was on staff at, he, you know, he had no problem with, with addressing issues and that kind of stuff. But, but he, he didn't want to turn over a whole day, a whole time at his church where he's just going to talk about AIDS and not teach the Scripture. 
And, and so, so he got a call from the, uh, from the North Carolina Baptist Convention. They were calling the churches who had not requested the information packet that they were sending out. And they called them and they said, hey, uh, you hadn't, you know, you hadn't you, you know, got your information packet. Are y'all not going to celebrate AIDS Awareness Day? That was their terminology. And the pastor said, we're going to mention something about AIDS Sunday, but I just want you to know that this summer Sunday, we're going to celebrate Jesus Awareness Day. He said, we've been, this, this church is 10 years old, and every Sunday for 10 years, we've celebrated Jesus Awareness Day, and that's what we're going to do again this Sunday, and that's what we're going to do every Sunday for the next 10 years as long as I'm here. And, he, and it wasn't that he was, he wasn't saying that this other issue wasn't important, and in fact, that church later went on to do some ministry stuff to directly help people who were suffering from AIDS, but what he was saying was, when I stand up to teach... I'm not here to teach about a disease. I'm not here to teach about a political candidate. He said, when I stand up to teach, I'm here to teach about Jesus. That's what I'm going to teach about. And if we're going to talk about how Jesus responds to people who are ill and Jesus responds to that, fine, we'll do that. But it's going to be about Jesus. It's going to be Jesus Awareness Day. And that's exactly what we see in the message of the disciples all the way through. Because really, in the end, the only issue that matters is where you stand in relationship to Jesus. That's the only issue that matters. Where do you stand in relationship to Jesus? All of these other issues are, are legit and they're out there, but if you don't deal with how you stand in relationship to Jesus, you're going to miss out on what's most important. Now, when I say that the, the message is, is simple, don't, don't get confused and think that I'm saying the message is shallow because simple and shallow are two different things. In fact, what I want us to do, I want us to look at what Stephen said, and then I want us to go back and look at, at what the, the, the other apostles that taught in the first five, uh, six chapters of the book of Acts, what they were teaching. And you're going to see that this is not a shallow message, but it's a simple message. And by simple, it was consistent. They said the same thing over and over again. Look again at what, what Stephen said, Acts 7, 51 through 53. It says this, You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you were just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was put into effect through the angels but have not obeyed it. There's nothing shallow about that. He's saying, you killed Jesus. That's what he's saying. Well, have we heard that before? Look back at Acts chapter 5, verse 30. This was after, after all 11 apostles had been arrested and, and, and when they, uh, they, they get released by the angel and they go out to teach and they stand before the Sanhedrin and this is what they say in Acts 5, 30. It says this, The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. Same simple message. You killed Jesus. Acts 4, 9 through 10. This is when, after Peter and John healed the, the man who was, who was crippled from birth, and, and after they had been arrested, and then they stand before the Sanhedrin, this is what they say there, Acts 4, 9 through 10. If we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. You killed Jesus. They're saying the same thing over and over again. Acts 3, 15. This was right after they healed the guy, before they'd been arrested. They're just standing out in the temple teaching. There's a crowd of people around them. And they said this, You killed the author of life, 
But God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. Acts 2, 23, and also Acts 2, verse 36. This is at Pentecost. The very first time Peter stands up publicly and declares the gospel. What does he say? He says, This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Then verse 36, Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. This is not a shallow message, even though it's a simple message, because it's a message of judgment. The message that the apostles preached was a message of judgment. The message was Jesus was the, he was the Son of God and you had him killed. And the message of judgment still applies to us, even though none of us were alive then. None of, us, none of us stood in the crowd and shouted, crucify him. None of us stood there and watched him be nailed to a cross. But what we know from what the scripture tells us is that all of us are guilty of sin. Romans 3.23 says that every single one of us have sinned and we've all fallen short of what God wants for us. And, and we know that if we're sinners, if we've, if we've committed sin, then we are responsible for the death of Jesus because it's our sin that sent him to the cross. It's our sin that made him hang on that tree. And so the message of judgment that, that the apostles were preaching is still, is still here for us today. But now here's the great part about the, the apostles' message. This simple message was not just a message of judgment. In every single one of these verses that I just read, after they declared judgment and they said, you killed Jesus, you stiff-necked people, you have uncircumcised hearts and ears, it's your fault. What did they follow it up with every single time? It was always followed up with grace. Look back at Acts 2, 38 through 39. Right after Acts 36, where Peter said, you killed Jesus, what does he say in Acts 2, 38 and 39? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. You killed Jesus, but you've got hope. It doesn't have to end here. You can accept Jesus. You can accept that forgiveness. And then you'll have the promise of the Holy Spirit and the promise of a new life. Acts 3, 17 through 20 and verse 26. Right after Acts 3, 15, where he said, you killed the author of life, what do they say next? Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Christ would suffer. Repent then, and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Verse 26, when God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. Acts 4.12, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Acts 5.31, God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. Every time that the apostles declared the judgment of God, it was always followed by the grace of God. And even Stephen, even though he didn't get a chance to do it, look at this, because see, Stephen, Stephen had laid the smack down and he'd said, you've got uncircumcised hearts and you're stiff-necked and you killed Jesus. He said the same thing. And before he could declare grace on them, what did they do? 
Well, they started gnashing their teeth and covering their ears, and they ran up and they grabbed him, and they took him outside, and they started throwing rocks at him to kill him. And even as he was dying, even as he was being killed, look at what he says in Acts 7.60. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. His dying words were words of grace to the very people who had been responsible for the death of Jesus and who are now responsible for his death. You see, if we're going to, to teach the, the simple message of Jesus, the, the same message over and over again, we, we, can't, we can't be fooled into thinking that it's a shallow message just because it's simple, just because we say the same thing over and over and over again. It, it's, it's anything far from being shallow. Um, some of y'all know that, that know me, you know that, that I play golf regularly. Like I play once every 10 years. That's how regular I am when I play golf. And, uh, and, and in fact, I've played my last game of golf. I'm never playing again. I've already made that decision. So if you ask me to go with you, I'll ride in the cart, you know, and, and hand you your clubs. I'll be your caddy, but I'm not playing anymore. But, uh, but I'll never forget the first time I played golf. I was in high school, and I went with a buddy of mine from school, and he played golf, and he said, hey, won't you come with me? And so we had like a half day of school or something. We went on a Friday afternoon, and, and uh, I went out there. And I remember looking, thinking, how, how hard can this be? The ball sits still. You know, I mean, I've played baseball before, and there are people are throwing the ball, and I can hit that. I mean, this ball sits still, right? I mean, golf is, golf is the simplest game there is, really, when you think about it. The ball sits still. No, everybody has to be quiet when you hit it, Right? No one's trying to knock you down while, you know, you play football, you're trying to do athletic stuff and people are knocking you all over the place. You play basketball and they're trying to knock you down and this kind of thing. But here, here the ball sits still. Everybody has to be quiet. I mean, people can't even be in your sight line for goodness sakes, right? They've got to all be back behind you and totally quiet. And all you got to do is you take this stick and you just hit it. How how hard? It's the simplest game ever. And the other thing is, the swing is the same. No matter what you're doing, the swing is basically the same. Now, I know there's ways you adjust it and all that kind of stuff, but it's not like you've got, okay, now, oh, we've got to do, use the left-handed swing here. We've got to do the swing where you're on your knees. It's the same thing over and over. You just swing, and you swing, and you swing, and you would think that it's the simplest thing. Everybody should be able to get it if you play it enough, and everybody should be able to be Tiger Woods or Jack Nicholas or whoever if you play it enough. But those of you that have played golf know that that's far from the truth. And I found that out the first day that I played. I thought, shoot, man, that ball is sitting still. I'm going to knock this thing like 12,000 yards. And I got up there, and after I'd swung five times and the ball was still sitting there, I realized this is a little bit harder than I thought. And see, the, the thing about the game of golf is the game of golf is simple, but it's not easy. It's simple, but it's, it's far from easy. And that's the same thing with the, the message that the apostles were sharing, the message that we need to be sharing here at this church. It, it's a simple message, but it's not easy. In fact, Jesus said at one time when he was teaching, he said, this is a hard teaching and not all of you are going to be able to accept it. Because the message of the gospel, the message of judgment and grace it, is simple. And we need to say the same thing over and over again, but it's never easy. But it's got to be the full thing. We, we've got to share all of it. It's got, if, if we share judgment, we've got to share grace. And if we share the wrath of God, we've got to share the unconditional love of God. And if we share about punishment for sin, then we've got to share about salvation from sin. It's the whole thing. In fact, in Acts chapter 5, verse 20, you remember when, the, uh, when all 12 apostles had been arrested and the angel comes and, and is going to let them out of jail? Do you remember what the angel said to them in Acts 5.20? He said this, Go stand in the temple courts 
and tell the people the full message of this new life. He didn't say go stand in the temple courts and tell people the judgment of God and how they killed Jesus and leave it at that. And he also didn't say go stand in the temple courts and, and just talk about grace and how it doesn't really matter you know, if God's mad or anything like that. Just It's all grace and so you're going to be okay in the end anyway. Just tell them that. No, he said tell them the full message. And that's what we need to be sharing. It's not easy. It's a hard message. It can be a difficult thing for people to understand. But God is a God of judgment and he's also a God of grace. And we've got to have both of those together. Because, because judgment without grace is hopeless. And grace without judgment is worthless. I mean, judgment without grace, we might as well all give up. We're all guilty of sin, and if there's no grace, then that's hopeless. But, but grace without judgment is worthless. Because if there's no judgment, you don't need grace. We can just do all that we want to do. And I think sometimes... We're guilty of leaning too far one way or too far the other way, and we don't have the balance. I think sometimes as church people, when we watch the news and we see stuff going on that we don't like, man, all of a sudden we're all judgment then. And them Aki Pie Wall Street people, good night. What's the matter with them? They're crazy. And we're all judgment when it comes to that stuff. But then sometimes we can be all grace especially when it's dealing with our own sin. Yeah, I know that, uh, you know, I know that I had an affair and I ran around on my, my husband or I ran around on my wife, but he was being so mean to me or she was ignoring me and that kind of stuff, and surely God's not going to be upset with me about that. And God forgives anyway. Doesn't God forgive everything? And so we want to go one direction or the other. We, sometimes we want to go all judgment or all grace, but the, but the truth is, is that the full message is that God is a God of judgment and He's a God of grace. And that the God who judges sin also does freely forgive sin. And, and that's what the apostles taught. They taught that judgment without grace is hopeless and grace without judgment is worthless. And then the, the greatest thing about, about what they, they talked about over and over again and, and what we see in their life is that, that even when they were in danger, even when their life was on the line, they continued to teach the message. The message was simple and it was worth dying for. They were willing to give up their life for the message. And we can't understand that really. Because in our culture, none of us have ever, in the culture we live in, none of us have ever been in danger because we own a Bible. You've never had to worry about being arrested if you were going to go to church on Sunday morning. You've never had to worry about being executed if you opened up your mouth and told your friend about Jesus. But that's the world that they lived in. And when they lived in that world where they knew, hey, if you talk about Jesus, you're going to be arrested, you're going to be beaten, and you're possibly going to be killed. Even though they lived in that world, you know what they did? They still shared the message. Because for them, it was worth dying for. Uh, I th thought about the Apostle Paul. He wrote in, in Romans 1.16 when he, he was talking about the gospel, and he said this in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. And that's how these guys lived. They, they weren't going to back off of what they were teaching because they understood if they didn't share this message, people would go to hell without it. 
that good religious Jewish people who'd grown up going to the synagogue, who'd grown up taking sacrifices to the temple, who'd grown up trying to follow the letter of the law, that even though they'd been so good and so moral that without the message of Jesus, they were going to die and go to hell, and they did not want to allow that to happen. So they were willing to give their lives for it. And I think for us, when we look at Romans 1.16, the key word for us is ashamed. Because none of us, like I said, you can talk about Jesus every day for the rest of your life as long as you live here in America and you're never going to be in danger of being executed for talking about Jesus. But for us, the key word is ashamed. Because it's easy for us to say, yeah, I would die for Jesus because we're not in danger of dying for Jesus. But the question is, would you be willing to be ashamed for Jesus? Would you be willing to be considered weird for Jesus? Would you be willing to be singled out for Jesus? See, that's the key for us. You're not going to be executed if you follow Jesus, but if you truly follow Jesus, you will be thought of as weird. There's no other way around it. If you read, the, if you read what Jesus taught and you try to do that, people are going to think you're weird. Jesus said, turn the other cheek. Try doing that and, and see if people don't think you're weird. Jesus said, not only are you not supposed to have sex before you're married, but you're not supposed to lust in your heart after people. Try doing that and see if people don't think you're weird. Jesus said, if someone comes to you and asks you for your coat, you're supposed to take your coat off and give it to them and give them the shirt off your back. Try doing that and see if people don't think you're weird. If we live for Jesus, we're going to be weird. We're going to be different. We're going to be singled out. But oftentimes, we get too afraid of being ashamed. And what we need to do is we need to look at the example of the apostles who they said, man, you can kill us. We're still going to teach it. You can kill every one of us, and we're still going to do it. You know, I thought about that day when they killed Stephen, and they drug him out of the city. And, you know, it's interesting, too. You know the reason they would drag people out of the city to stone them? Because it wouldn't have been right to kill them in the holy city of Jerusalem. But they didn't think there was anything wrong with take them out of town and kill them, then God's okay with it. That's how hypocritical the situation was. But they drug him out of the city and they, they stoned him. They threw rocks at him until he died. And I'm sure that that day, the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin as they were called, they probably thought, man, that was a huge victory for us. What better deterrent than killing somebody? And they probably thought to themselves, slapped themselves on the back as they walked back into town, this is going to put a stop to this, man. Those guys are going to shut up now. We just killed Stephen. Word's going to get out. They're going to they're quit talking about it. And we're done today at this church talking about the book of Acts. But I hope you'll continue to read it. Because if you read from Acts chapter 8 to the end of the book of Acts, you'll see that the exact opposite of what the Sanhedrin thought would happen, happened. That what happened after that is, is that people began to spread out all over the area. And people began to get on boats and take the message to countries they had never been to. And people began to travel all throughout the known world telling the gospel of Jesus. Because to the apostles, they didn't care if you were going to kill them or not. They welcomed death. They weren't afraid to die. And they stuck with the, with the simple message, even though they were being beaten, even though they were being killed. And in fact, the, 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 the 12 apostles, 11 out of the 12 apostles, History tells us suffered the exact same fate that Stephen did, that they continued to teach the gospel, 
and eventually they were executed as a result of it. And the one, <coughs> excuse me, the one who wasn't executed was John, and he was forced to live in solitude on an island for the rest of his life. Why? Because he taught the gospel. These guys weren't afraid to die for it. They weren't afraid to be in shame for it. They weren't afraid to lose their houses for it. They stuck to the simple message, and they were committed until they died. Now, I kept wondering about how am I going to close this message, and I don't really know, so this is, this is kind of my closing statement. But I, um, one of the things that's amazing is, as you read these, these seven chapters of Acts that we've been journeying through the last few months, a couple few weeks, I mean, is that there's 12 guys obeyed what Jesus said. 12 of them. And the reason that we're here today is because 12 guys obeyed what Jesus said. Have you ever thought about the fact that if those guys had said, man, Jesus is gone, we're going to go back to the old way of life. We're not going to follow this anymore. We wouldn't be here today. Washington Baptist Church wouldn't be here today. Memorial Methodist Church wouldn't be here today. Appalachian Baptist Church wouldn't be here today. Springwell Church wouldn't be here today. If those 12 guys had said, we're not going to do what Jesus said. But you had 12 guys, 12 guys who had less resources than we do, 12 guys who faced a whole lot more opposition than we face, and look what they did. And I really believe this, what I'm about to say. I think we should do greater things than those 12 guys did. And I think the only reason we don't is because we just don't really obey what Jesus said like we should. Because there's over 100, 200 of us Imagine if, if the 200 of us did what the 12 guys did and we, we continued to teach the simple message everywhere we went. That when people told us to shut up about it, we continued to teach it. That we continued to rely on the Holy Spirit and to pray and to ask God to bless and, and, and to get out of the way and let Him work. If we did that, we don't have as much opposition, we've got more resources, and we have the same God. We should accomplish way more than the apostles ever did. And what I'm praying for us as a church is that we will. I'm praying for us as a church that all of us would walk out of here and we wouldn't be quiet about Jesus until we showed up here ne again next Sunday. I'm praying that when we walk out of here every Sunday, that when, when, we, when we meet people, that we wouldn't be able to shut up about Jesus. There's a lot of things that we can't shut up about that don't mean anything. We can't shut up about football teams. And let me tell you something. When the world comes to an end, there ain't going to be no football teams in heaven. And every single football stadium that there is is going to burn when the earth burns up. It's going to burn just with everything else. But I'm just like you. We can't shut up about that kind of stuff. But I'm praying that what we won't be able to shut up about anymore is the truth of Jesus. And I'm praying that for my own life as well. I'm praying that for our church. So what I want us to do, we're going to close in prayer. And I want to challenge you 
um, that you would finish the book of Acts on your own, that you would read it. Acts chapter, starting with Acts chapter 8 to the end of the book, and just see how God continued to move. And also see how the message never changed. Paul goes all over the world and he keeps preaching the same thing. You killed Jesus, but you can be forgiven of that. That's what he preached. And that's what we need to be preaching here. Let's say a prayer. Father God, thank you for truth. Thank you that we find truth every time we open the Bible. And Lord, I pray that we would quit being ashamed to talk about you. Whatever it is that we're scared of, God, that you do away with it. And Lord, help us to, to know it's okay to be weird. As long as we're being weird for you. God, you are a good, kind, and gracious God. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that the story doesn't end with your judgment. Because I know we're all guilty. We're all guilty of sin. But all of us are responsible for you dying on the cross. Lord, I pray that we would walk out of here today opening our mouths and boldly telling people about Jesus. And it's in his name that we ask this. Amen.